Did we talk about the new iPhone yet? The iPhone is amazing. Hang on. I, let me let's see if I can answer your question, Tim. Siri, really? have we talked about the I, new iPhone yet? Have we? Everything you need to know about Apple products is at Apple's website. <laughs> Siri, go to hell. Siri, Kirk would like you to go to hell. Did I do something wrong? Ooh. <laughs> Hang on. Let me Siri just... is the greatest she thing is an unapologetic Ever. Apple fangirl. I love Siri. Do you both have iPhone 4Ss? Yes. Duh. Okay. Siri, I love you. You hardly know me. Siri, fill in for me, maybe? Siri, do you like the Smiths? I really have no opinion. You have to, you have to do this. Hang on. Hang on, Siri. Sorry, I don't understand. Is considered you have? Siri, thank you for your help. I have I have found that what Siri what Siri has done that that for me that I like the most is that you know how I forget to do things. Right, because you're Siri is Jim an idiot. Jim is the guy who talked to us about how he doesn't need a calendar. And it's hard to imagine that a man who a grown man who believes he doesn't need a calendar forgets things. That's hard to imagine. But that's different. That's the calendar is not the issue. The issue is, for example, reminding myself. I know what the issue is, Jim. Go on, <laughs> make up your little story about what the issue is, and we'll all nod and just agree because at this point we understand. <laughs> and nodding goes down well on a podcast. The issue is the issue is me not remembering to do things like you know pull the pull dinner out for the next night when I get home from somewhere or like tonight we want to run the dishwasher when we go to bed but we might forget but if I tell Siri to send a reminder when we go to bed to remind us to run the dishwasher boom it, it pops up wouldn't it mm. be better if Siri just actually did it for you oh well, yeah that's the iPhone 5 um, <clears throat> did you explain like why we weren't here last week because Jim couldn't be bothered to do a podcast? <laughs> That's not true. I didn't see anybody. Oh. Actually, the truth is I didn't really have any songs for In the Mix, so I felt bad. Ah, so it was In well, the Mix's fault. So you couldn't take some of my songs? I, unlike, and say they were in your mix even though you didn't have time to listen to them? Unlike, or you could do what I do and just don't listen to something and tell, say that it's in your mix when you get the, around to it. One, or you could do, or you could do that. I had pledged not to do in the mix, not to do Tom Waits in the mix, and then two, unlike Tim, I like to actually have listened to songs before I recommend them to people. Yeah, but life is so busy sometimes it doesn't allow you to listen to the songs, so you have to just say that, you know, I I trust you, the listener, to trust me that on good faith I will listen to those songs and they will be in my mix. That's the that's my point. Well, it's a stupid point. <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's my point. And you know what? Can I just point out one other thing? I stood in line for one hour tonight to get Modern Warfare 3 for my 15-year-old. 
Why couldn't your 15-year-old stand in line for Modern Warfare 3? I, he was doing homework. You see, if, if I got Modern Warfare... him while he stood in line? No, it's the other way around. He'll do his homework if he knows he's getting Modern Warfare 3. It's crazy. This is crazy. This game is earned making $1 billion. And last night when they opened up or when they when it went on sale last night they had 400 people lined up to buy it. It's insane. Uh, Why don't you just get it from Amazon? It doesn't work that way. Let me guess. It's not on Steam. It doesn't work that way. Well, basically, you know, it's... Um, Why wouldn't it work that way? Everything's on Steam. With GameStop, you have... You, you put a layaway. You kind of basically... You're on layaway. You, you do what like the modern layaway. You put money, you put money what, down. Sears going to bring me my new house in a box on the railroad, and I'll go down and pick it up with the horse-drawn yes. carriage, and then I got video games on layaway. Yeah, because we can't pay for it all up, you know, all at one well, time. How much is the goddamn game? Games are what ninety-nine cents. <laughs> games like this are like now about I don't know seventy dollars. Why would I play a $70 game when I can get games for $0.99? Cents? Um, I think it was $60 plus tax. Oh, you got a deal there. You waited yeah. in line for that? I waited in line with and that. Harry got to stay home. So wait a second. Yep. You made fun of me for waiting in line for the iPhone, but, but you waited in line for a video game. It's different. You could have downloaded from the Internet for free. Exactly. It's different. Siri, is Tim an idiot for standing in line for Modern Warfare 3? Yeah, because he could have gone to some pub with free Wi-Fi and had a couple of beers while he downloaded it from BitTorrent, burned it onto a DVD before he got home, and then handed it to Harry, here's your disc. That doesn't work, does it? Siri, should Tim have bootlegged Modern Warfare 3 for his son? I don't know what you mean by... Siri should ten of bootleg Modern Warfare three for his son. Yeah. It's nine seventeen p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Tuesday, November eighth, two thousand and eleven, and that means it's time for the Media Lover Bebop. Tonight, Amazon is now just giving books away on the Kindle. And also, my plan to move daylight savings time, my plan to move daylight saving time into the 21st century. All of that Thank and, you. and what's yeah. in my mix on Media Loper Bebop episode 22, time change. Time change. I'm your host Jim Connolly and with me as always are Tim Gaskell, um, an hour behind, and Kirk Biglioni. I'm completely relative. Last week, Amazon announced the latest in a series of Amazon Prime benefits, the Kindle Owner's Lending Library, which is what it sounds like, free books delivered to your Kindle to keep as long as you want. Of course, there are restrictions, one book at a time, which is fine, but it seems to me this is not the kind of thing that the publishing industry is wild about. Kirk, you're the expert on the eBooks. How is the publishing industry doing with the Kindle Owner's Lending Library? Oh, you know, the 
publishing industry isn't um, a monolithic thing. Some small publishers are on board. Uh, the major publishers, the big six, are, are not on board and probably won't be on board. But there are enough independent publishers who are participating that, um, you know, they got 5,000 books or so already, and they'll probably have more. They apparently are being very aggressive about paying. If you don't want to participate, but they think that people might want your book, they're offering to pay like a wholesale price each time someone checks it out. That's a pretty good deal. Some publishers, some publishers or some authors who have the rights to their books, if they can negotiate the right deal, will do all right. Uh, and it'll be a big enough draw for the platform that this is one reason to get a Kindle and not something else. And it doesn't matter what the big six publishers think because Amazon has enough money to just go forward and do this with other segments of the market that aren't necessarily the top tier now, but might be the top tier in the future because they're participating in programs like this. Yeah, it's a library. Well, exactly. Though it, 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 it is and it isn't, and it depends on a lot of things. Um, um, how many copies are they allow, be allowed? You can only check out one book right. at a time and only one a month. But how many people can check out the same book simultaneously, and what are they paying for each of those copies? With a library, they have to they do the DRM such that it's roughly the equivalent to, to buying a print book. Where if they have got five, they have a limited budget, so they can only five, buy five copies of the most popular or bestseller in ebook, and they can only have five copies out at one time. Wait a second, we're talking about virtual digital copies, right? So theoretically, there's no limit to... Oh, no one ever claimed that there was no limit, except that you put $7 million, you, you, you paid Sarah Palin $7 million for her book, and now you have to make your money back, and you have to accommodate the library system, because you could say... And most publishers would be happy to say, we aren't going to sell books to libraries anymore because we don't see how that actually sells books. Because can you imagine people having access to books then wanting to buy books? What kind of world is that? It, they don't it helps understand to educate that, people. They don't understand that you know a program that kind of supports reading leads to more reading and more people who buy books. Anyway, yep. whatever. Well, you know, they're publishers. They don't really understand why people buy books. So, well, Very this, true. Is true. this is true, because they normally, their customers are bookstores, <laughs> not, not people who read books. Back to Tim's question about, or was it Jim's question about ebooks are unlimited? Right. Books are unlimited, but the business model when you've paid someone like Sarah Palin $7 million for the rights to her book is you have to sell books. And you can't just say the one exception is the library because the library bought one ebook, they can loan it out to 7,000 people simultaneously. It's, they're buying a license at that point. And we've talked about this with regard to like Netflix and video streaming services and music services. You don't have an unlimited number. Yes, digital is unlimited, but if you didn't have some kind of mechanism for charging for use, there would be no business. Right. So when, when a library buys, you know, 
five copies of an ebook. They can't check out more than those five copies because those are, if they check out a sixth, then for all intents and purposes, they have six copies of that book. So, but, but, but if you're saying, so I thought you said Amazon's paying the publishers per... We don't know. Amazon, this is all private. This is not like a public thing. Everything right. is speculation and third, someone said this, someone said that. Um, the things that have been pieced together is many, there are many different deals depending on the publisher and whatever they can negotiate. And we know that none of the big publishers are doing it. Smaller publishers, are, there are some fairly big names in there. Uh, at least one a publisher was apparently surprised to find that their book is part of the program. And this may be like one of the publishers, reportedly Amazon is, is paying for certain publishers, for certain books, paying per lend, per time someone checks it out, as if it's a sale, even though they're not collecting any money. Because some publishers have the, re the wholesale contract with Amazon, not the agency contract with Amazon, where they treat the ebooks as if they are physical books. And they it's that's a whole different world. And so apparently those contracts are written in such a way that Amazon can just use the books and treat them like real book like you know, like if we bought your new hardcover and paid you the price we would normally pay to you, we could do anything we want to with it. And they're treating the ebooks that way. And so some publishers apparently are surprised to see their books in the program because they didn't authorize it, but their contract is such that Amazon can do it. And Amazon is taking a loss on that. But what they're doing is they're creating a feature that no one else is going to have because very few other companies could afford to do that. Right. It's a loss leader, basically. From the different reports that have come from different sources, there are enough different deals out there that it's obvious Amazon wants this to be some differentiating thing. And this is not unlike all the stuff that's going on with Netflix. Is it's all negotiations, private negotiations for access to content, what we're going to pay, and how many times we can stream it, and all that kind of thing. Same thing. So is it possible that if so, is it possible that I want to uh, put Moneyball on my Kindle, but first I want to you know, finish the Hunger Games, and so I finished the last book of the Hunger Games, and suddenly Moneyball's gone? That could be, yes. That could be. Just wait till you finish it. But you could keep Moneyball in your, according to the terms that they've outlined, you could keep Moneyball on your shelf as your one book for as long as you want. You don't ever have to give it back. But when you give it back, if when you get another book, you give it back. Right. But but if so if if but what you're saying is if it's like Netflix if the contract runs out while it's still on my shelf do I if lose access to it? No one knows. <laughs> <laughs> you will know when it happens, and that is a potential scenario that will blow up into something like 1984 being deleted. <laughs> I suppose it can be removed because every time you turn it on, you essentially log on, don't you? Yeah, you could turn your wireless off. Yeah, I suppose that's the only way you could keep it. I mean, no one ever really... That's the most interesting thing about this whole thing is that consumers of digital media instinctively know that when they're buying digital media, they're not really buying a thing. They don't really own anything. And this is the first commercial effort to really kind of mirror that perception. Right. Money. Would you would you consider that you owned if you had paid 
9.99 for the the Kindle edition of Moneyball would you feel like you owned that book? This, yeah. <laughs> well, this is you're right. This is the thing. I I um I'm I'm going back and forth now whether I want to cuz I'm almost finished with Song of Ice and Fire books. I'm thinking about Reemdee now and I'm thinking about even though so they fixed the problems that you were talking about with the digital version. I've own I own all of Stevenson's stuff hardback. So as a you know someone who likes books likes the hardback books, I want to buy it as a hardback. But at the same time, do I really want to cart around a thousand page hardback book when I can just no. download it to the Kindle? And this is a whole yes. separate issue, which is in, for books like that, they need to have some kind of way to do a bundle. Buy the print book and get the ebook. Or whatever platform you want. Right, like, like, like. That's with, a great idea. Yeah, like they do that with music all the time. And it's got to be done in a way where you don't have to be like Amazon or Apple or whatever. It works across those channels. Mm-hmm. So, and my other, my other thing about this. So, I actually went and spent some some serious time this weekend with the lending library, and five thousand books. There wasn't a lot that I was interested in, but. I know that will change, but the, my biggest problem was, at least right now, the only interface is through the Kindle, which means six books at a time, page, wait, six more books, page, wait. It's not really a very efficient way of finding something to actually read. Yeah, I don't think they're trying to make it that. It's it's a differentiating feature that a lot of people are talking about and is costing them money. So really, why would they want to optimize your ability to find books if it's costing them money? It's enough that it's a differentiating feature right now. It'll but, get better in the future, but in the meantime, it would be better if you didn't check out too many books. Well, but I but also if I badmouth it and, and, and a bunch of people who are early adopters badmouth it, then maybe it doesn't ever take off. It doesn't become a differentiating feature, it just becomes a boondoggle. People don't usually badmouth free content. Unless it's bad free content. Yeah. I, I mean at that at that point you sound like a whiner. We're giving you free books. Adding on to a feature to a product you've already paid for, we don't need to give you any more than what you've already paid for, but we're giving you these free books, and now you're complaining? I'm not complaining. All I'm saying is, okay, I tried it. I'll never try it again. Which I'm not saying that, but I can see where people would say that. And until I find out they have more books, it's not – by the way, Kirk, it's not – it's not necessarily oh, there's only five thousand books. It's it's hard to navigate because oh yeah, the no, I, yeah, I went through all of those and it's hard to yeah. Discovery is hard, and it's not any easier on their website. Um, I don't think it's on their website. That's the thing. Yeah, there you have to like. I think I saw a link to the catalog on the website. Uh, that potentially is another way. Go through it on the website and just send it to your Kindle from the do web. They, do they have like interstitial ads or something? Is that why it's so hard? No, the Kindle browser is just, it's only six items per well, page. The Kindle interface slow. in general, you could say that about shopping for books on You're the Kindle. Absolutely right, but... It's no, it's no different it's, from... But Kirk, it's easy, to, it's, easy to, it's easy to shop on the Amazon site for books straight, straight up 
figure out, identify the book, and then I, I, and then buy it. I'm going to go on a, on a limb, Jim, and say that most of the people who buy books on the Kindle device, who will be the people who will be going through doing the lending, are not in your demographic or anywhere near your demographic, and they're fine with it. Okay. Because they skew older and of a different gender. And if they're if once they know how to do it and have the certain ex- expectation of the speed that e-ink moves, and part of that is just e-ink displays are, you know, they're not like an LCD display. And yes, you've got a smaller display and you don't have a nice, the controls are kind of weird. Um, but people who are like heavy, there are people who probably, well, I won't get into it. Uh, <laughs> There are people who live with their Kindles as if in the same way that we might live with smartphones or iPads. Or iPods. Perfectly happy with the performance of the crappy built-in store and the crappy built-in lending library will be, you know, what they will see as free. You're listening to Medialopa Bebop. Don't you have anything better to do with your life? We did do a podcast last week. Because of that, we did get a voicemail from Commissioner Loper, which I will play now. Jim, this is Media Loper Bebop Commissioner Gordon Loper. Where were you guys last week? Don't you know that our entire ad revenue depends upon you assholes doing the podcast? The Home Office makes $10,000 for every podcast you do. You don't do a podcast and Mrs. Loper gets angry. You wouldn't like Mrs. Loper when she's angry. Hmm. Wow. Basically, okay. he threatened us to do podcasts. Yeah, jeez. idea that would take some of his leverage away. What's that? It involves kidnapping Scott Oliver and Jay Fung. <laughs> well, we'll see him at Christmas when they do the Miss We, we need meeting. leverage, and they might be just the leverage we need. You know, Let's do it. Every time we try to kidnap Jay Fung for leverage, it always backfires. It's like the ransom of Red Chief. Please mark this segment of the podcast as the period where we talk about where we plan to kidnap Jay Fung. The plot to get capture Jay Fung. <laughs> so basically, but isn't that illegal? Kidnapping? I would, I would say that if we kidnapped him, we could hold him for the highest bidder. Well, think I think... Sue would outbid the commissioner. I think also if you announce it, it's not really illegal. It's when you do it on the down low. Oh, because the cover-up's worse than the crime? Right. So if you announce a crime and then do the crime, it's not really... much. It's much better. Yeah, you give fair warning. People can take the precautions. Uh, you can say, look, I, you can't say I didn't warn you. This is Jim Connolly with a musical moment to die for. The Dream Syndicate's 1982 album, The Days of Wine and Roses, was a revelation. Dominated by Carl Percota's noisy guitar and Steve Wynn's nervous breakdown vocals, the whole album sounded like Bob Dylan decided to get the Velvet Underground to play in his basement while he was recovering from that motorcycle crash. And on the last half of Then She Remembers, they leave nearly every other band of the decade behind, as Percota makes like Peter Buck cross with Bob Mould, and Steve Wynn gets ever more psychotic. Yeah. 
By the end of the song, you realize that while she remembers what she said, no one else will ever, ever want to know. That was the Dream Syndicate with Then She Remembers from 1982's The Days of Wine and Roses. A song with a musical moment to die for. And now, a flashback to the KFSR first anniversary show, recorded in October of 1983, shortly after the time change that year. Okay, and uh, by now I suppose they're probably placing bets on who's going to be number one. <laughs> you too, with number Refugee four, and Sunday hour. Bloody Sunday, you too, number four. Uh, you hear JDJ and Tim, the Tim G. Gaskell, Gaskell and Johnny Heathen, who's lost his hair in the Completely. background. Completely. Radiation uh, therapy. <laughs> is, someone declared the death. Someone declared the death of his mohawk last night. I don't understand. Anyway, five minutes before four. Before four o'clock. Before ten o'clock. It's been a long day. Believe Time me. Change. <laughs> Time back. change. Set your clocks back. back about six hours, and you'll be fine. Uh, give us a call. Two nine. This is number three. Game. Forty eighty two. These people are number three. We're going to be Here's seeing the them. <laughs> Saturday night in San Diego. And you're not. We're going to see them, and most of you probably won't. All of you probably won't. Here are the violent sounds. Last week, we all, except for those of you in Arizona, of course, set our clocks back an hour as part of a desperate twice-yearly attempt to compensate for living in Earth's northern hemisphere. In our case... We reverted from Pacific Daylight Time to Pacific Standard Time. And right now, millions and millions of people are going through a minor bout of jet lag-like symptoms and attempting to get their biological clocks straight with their actual clocks. And I'm here to say, we don't need to do this anymore. I have a plan to bring Daylight Saving Time out of the 18th century and into the 21st century. Would you like to hear it? Yeah, I was going to say, Jim, what is your plan? Well, Tim, I'm glad you asked. It's this simple. Starting right now, every three days, we all set our clocks ahead one minute. That way, in 180 days, when we'd be normally setting our clocks ahead a full hour, we're already there. And then, because there's 365 days in a year, we wait five days and start all over again, setting our clocks back a minute every three days. Now... I know what you're saying. What a pain in the ass to change a clock every three days. But here's the thing. Many, many of our clocks, like in our computers, our DVRs, our phones, things like that, they're already connected to the cloud. So we just have the cloud do it. And as far as our analog clocks, eh, you just change them when you notice they're a few minutes off from your cloud clocks. It's perfect. It's modern. It's the future. We should do it. And it kind of keeps your head in the game. You know, you're always thinking about the time and is today the day I set my clock forward or backward? That's a really good idea. Thank you. Well, you know that Microsoft is going to have to do it its own way. (laughs) If we're going to do this, you need a very strict standard so that we have standardized time. We can't allow the different manufacturers to kind of implement their own variation in ways that will 
be exploited by the kind of people who, you know, might use a fraction of a second to make a killing in the market. Well, I think that, is it the USA geological clock that's in Colorado? Isn't that the, like, the official clock? That is the official one, and that is the atomic clock, the one that sets my wristwatch every Have you every ever seen months. it? Have you ever seen it? I don't have to see it. I see. So it's like God to you. <coughs> no. Well, I, no. The I, difference I, is this clock is real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you haven't seen it. Yeah, but the clock sets the... <sighs> but God makes the sun rise. Same thing. Uh oh, I think God's killing Tim. Oh, hang on. No, here's the difference. I don't I don't pray to the clock. I don't expect anything of from the clock other than to give me an accurate time to win one to within one one millionth of a second every quarter of a century or something. I don't know what it is. Um, you win the war against your enemies. Yeah. And the clock you see, to smite your neighbor's dog. But the clock is real. I here's my here's my cool watch, and you guys probably don't even have watches because you're not uh, that cool. But I have a cool watch that, when it becomes time to set your clock forward or backward, I take this clock off, I put it in my window, and I push a button, and then in the morning it is set to the proper time. It sets itself. It goes either backwards or forwards, depending on where we are. And it's really cool. I never have to wind it. I never have to set the clock. I never have to do anything. That's the most I have to do is just take it off and put it in the window and let it get the magic beam from Colorado. Wait, you have to put your clock? You have to put your watch in the window? What if somebody yeah. says, oh, look at Tim's super cool watch. I'm going to steal it. Well, they'd have to get in my backyard first, which is quite tricky at this point. All right. Well, hang on. I need to ask Siri a question. Siri, is Tim's watch really all that cool? I don't understand. Siri is James. <laughs> no. Siri, again. is Tim's watch all that cool? Sorry. I don't understand. Siri, is Tim's watch all that cool? I'm going to say that's a no. The reason she doesn't understand is because what she is saying is you have to ask the question. Of course it's cool. So, so it's okay. Let me ask you one more question. then. Okay. Is Siri real? You just heard her. I think this is a question for Siri. Don't you Siri? Are you real? I can't answer that. Why can't you answer that? Checking on that for you. I can't ask, answer that, but I could Siri search the God web for real. it, if you like. Siri, is God real? I found 12 churches. Seven of them are very <laughs> close to you. <laughs> so obviously God is real because Siri found his churches. In the meantime, Gordon Loper is waiting on your watch. Tim, your watch sucks. Why yeah, do we only get... How come he's the only caller we get? <laughs> he's our only listener. Can we go to the phones and get some other calls? I think eventually our fans are going to... The people, next time you get feedback on the podcast, Kirk, at some convention, it's going to be people saying, can we have Siri talk to Gordon and not you guys? Hmm. Siri interviews Gordon. <laughs> 
That's a whole podcast. <laughs> it's a right. whole podcast. Why don't you have Gordon ask Siri a question? <laughs> Let me see if I get Gordon back on the line. Siri, will you marry me? Sorry, I don't understand. Siri, will you marry me? <laughs> She's you playing coy, obviously. Siri, will you marry me? Okay. When's the meeting? <laughs> <laughs> oh, she wants to schedule the meeting? Siri, will you marry me? Sorry, I don't understand. Siri, will you treat me? Okay, when? Say, say Siri, Siri will, will you be you my bride? Me? I don't understand. Siri, will you... I think Siri's just pissed at this point. Talking about moonbeams in my room. And now it's time for In The Mix. This week, it's my turn. One of the things that should be self-evident, but I've only really, truly realized after 30 years is this. John Doe is a hell of a singer. And on his most recent album, that aptly named Keeper, he proves it yet again with the Torch song, Moonbeams. Sometimes a drifting Tick is a band that proudly wears their influences on their sleeve, and those influences are, well, the replacements. Let's All Go to the Bar from the new album Divine Providence sounds like it could have jumped off a hoot nanny, which is never a bad thing in my book. And finally, Kirk's favorite band, The Smiths, recently put out a box set of great sounding remasters. And while I was doing some research on what other Smiths fans were thinking about those remasters, I came across a blog called The Power of Independent Trucking, which had a link to a treasure trove of Smiths demos and outtakes filled with original versions and alternate takes. And guys, these sound great. Especially things like the punkabilly version of Rush Home Ruffians. The last night of the fair. And beyond that, there's a great, faster version of There Is A Light That Never Goes Out. The best thing on the whole, well, it's not really an album, it's more like a series of, of files, <laughs> is an early version of Death of a Disco Dancer, which just reminds me that while I think Strange Ways Here We Come was alternately undercooked and overproduced, that particular track is on the short list of greatest Smith songs ever.
great song. And <clears throat> the reason, one of the reasons that made the Smiths so amazing, of course, was Johnny Marr and the way he orchestrated his guitars. Yeah, and the interesting thing about this particular take, and most of these are, um, well, not most of these, but at least this, and then there's also Paint a Vulgar Picture from that, is they're really, really, they're so early, there's just one guitar. It's obviously the band just running through the song and learning the song in the studio. Like a demo. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sir. Just one more thing. One more thing. Tim. Well, I had a bunch of uh, possible one more things tonight. I was thinking about Old Vine Zinfandel as being one potential one more thing. And then I was thinking about... Um, what was the other thing? I had a bunch of... I had a whole list of one more things. And hang on. <clears throat> Kirk, was one of your one more things Evernote... Um, no. Didn't you talk about it once? I thought you did. Anyway, I've discovered the joys. I've, I've been using Evernote off and on for a while, but I've really put it to use in the last week. And um, this is one of the greatest apps ever, and I love the way it coordinates with all your devices, your computer, your iPhone, your iPad, and it's all simultaneously synced and everything, and you can have links and notes and f different folders. It is it is definitely one of the best productivity apps you can get. I suggest you get it and use it. Couldn't you have used Evernote to remind you of what your one more thing was? Um, yes. You know what? I did have um, I did have everything in my Evernote folder except for that. Ah. Okay. One more thing, Kirk. So, as you know, I was in San Francisco last week for the second annual Books and Browsers, which is sort of emerging to be like a West Coast equivalent of TOC, which is the annual conference in New York every February about the future of the book publishing industry. Uh, the one in San Francisco is co-sponsored by O'Reilly and the Internet Archive, and it's it's like two intense days in a church, literally. It's at the Internet Archive, which is located in a church. And the area underneath, which is where their offices are, are former Sunday schools. And that's where the conference is. And it's like, every, unlike any other conference which has tracks, this is everyone in, a, in the same room for two solid days. It's intense. And uh, upstairs, there's like the church. And then up in like the back are the racks, massive racks of hard drives that uh, the um, Wayback Machine runs on. The Wayback Machine, where you type in any web address and you see what it looked like, you know, back oh, yeah. in 1996. Yep. Um, so anyway, it's like uh, um, uh, two solid days of uh, the leading thinkers about the future of books, ebooks, publishing, reading social reading, um, just all the stuff. By far, the coolest thing I saw at BIB this year was presented very briefly at the beginning of her presentation, Mary Lou Jepson, who was one of the founders of One Laptop Per Child, was talking about how Brewster Kale, who was the 
founder of the Internet Archive, had been challenging them at a meeting last year, one laptop per child foundation meeting, to come up with some way to make books more widely accessible in third world environments. Uh, you know, the one laptop per child, you've seen that like plastic. It's ruggedized, it's low power, it's high contrast, it works in, you know, with minimal power and broad daylight. And every laptop has peer-to-peer -peer wireless networks. So even if they don't have the internet, they can communicate with each other. And it's got special software, educational software for like group classware environments. Uh, and so their response was a thing that she showed off at you know, BIB at the beginning of her presentation. It's called a book server. And it's a little tiny box that plugs into a wall but it could plug into a wall that runs on, you know, an outlet that runs on solar power. Um, and it runs, it's a, when you plug it in, it's like a little computer that boots up a wireless network. So anyone in distance can connect to it with one of these one laptop per child computers, OLPC computers. Uh, and it runs a web server and holds 20,000 books. And it's a library, essentially, that plugs into a wall. And any kid who has one of these devices can connect to it and check any one of the books out of the library. And because they're all classics in public domain, there are no limitations, unlike your local library and e-books. Uh, and 20,000 books works out to be... Uh, more than any of us ever had in our libraries when we were in school. We talk about the impact of technology on our culture, but when you look at the impact of stuff like that on third world cultures, it's kind of mind-boggling. So, and since the purpose of Media Library Bebop is to help people, <laughs> I think we need to do a Kickstarter. These devices are only $99. <laughs> Think how many libraries we could build. Whoa. I know. Actually, hang on one second. Siri, what is the purpose of Media Loper Bebop? Checking my sources. Would you like to search the web for Siri? What is the purpose of Media Loper Bebop? Uh, no thanks. Mm -hmm. You have to call her Siri. What if you just... Don't say her name. It's not polite. Yeah, you can't. Of course, you. It's etiquette. Yeah. This it's part of the bonding process with with your virtual assistant. I see, but she never calls you by your name. Her name. It's implied, but honestly, seriously, Kirk, that does sound awesome. I, as a kid, I mean, you know, all I could do is like try to devour every single book that was around me. So having that kind of library, I just can't even imagine for for an, a, a kid who's inclined to want to read everything to have that kind of choice would be amazing. Yeah, that is pretty awesome. I like that idea. One more thing. One of the things that I gave up when I moved to L.A. a, d a decade ago was the chance to see my beloved San Francisco 49ers every week, a ritual I had indulged for like 30 years prior to moving here. Luckily, so to speak, that co coincided with a run of seasons where the 49ers gave up being a good football team, which made it easier not to see them. However, this season, things have changed. Halfway through, the Niners are 7-1 and and leading the abysmal NFC West by five full games, and they're doing it with rushing in defense, which is as, as ahistorical for the 49ers as it was for the Giants to rely on pitching. 
So while I've only gotten to see them a couple of times this season, I'm looking forward to seeing them in the playoffs, which only an ahistorical collapse would prevent. So Tim, it's time to ask a question we first broached 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. How about those 49ers? Those 40 effing Niners? Remember the t-shirt we used to have? Yep, 40 fucking Niners. <clears throat> we had it. I don't know where we got it, but we had it. And <clears throat> what's, what is amazing is uh, this renaissance of the team that kind of came out of nowhere. I was expecting a 500 team once again, and uh, they're 7-1, and one and they're... You know they would have to really suck to be 500 again this year. So yeah, they they could easily be end up being like 13 and three when it's all said and done. Yeah, I mean what's amazing when you think about it, they really should be eight and zero oh because they <clears throat> they lost against a pretty kind of a weak Cowboy team and they had them right up until the end. And you know could it's a flip of a coin that could have easily been a victory. So. They could have been like the Green Bay Packers and been the only team undefeated at this point in the season. How about those 49ers? I don't know what you mean by, how about those 49ers? <laughs> and that does it for Media Loper Bebop episode 22, Time Change. As always, I'd like to thank my co-host, Tim Gaskell. Who is now finally caught up to the, the, the time in question, which was... An hour out. And Kirk Biglioni. This is how I spent my extra hour this week. And I'd like to thank you again for listening. And if you want, set your clock back an hour and listen again. Ooh, good idea. Uh, I'm Jim Connolly, and we'll catch you again next week. Same Bebop time, same Bebop channel. <laughs>